Hi, I'm Melanie. And I'm Justin. And we're a couple of counselors. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here or coming back. We're excited to keep momentum. Basically looking at episode three and figuring out what are some of the major topics we haven't touched on yet or what might build from what we've already discussed and attachment keeps coming to the surface. So we're going to be going there today. Yeah, and I'm excited to go there because uh, anybody who knows me professionally and even some people who have just heard me talk about this at a personal level know that attachment is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. Um, I really get excited about it, which makes me feel a little bit like a nerd, but it's true. I, I think it's a very important topic. I think it's a very misunderstood topic, and I'm excited to talk about it um, with you today. Yeah, so what do you think people get wrong or confused about attachment? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and I think there's a lot of different things to say about that. But <laughs> the most, there's a couple kind of like disclaimers I want to give and hopefully I'll answer your question in that. So the first one is that attachment styles are not, uh, they're not diagnostic. So they're the only attachment disorder in the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the most recent edition is 2013. The only diagnosable attachment disorder is reactive attachment disorder. And what we'll be talking about today is uh, the, the more four commonly understood styles. So I think the first thing that people get misunderstood is that they, they are something. Like they are an avoidant, you know, mm-hmm. avoidantly attached person or they are this. When really what we're going to talk about when we get into the four strategies are that they are strategies. Mm-hmm. And their responses to the care you receive as a child, and then there's strategies and ultimately patterns that develop into adulthood. Yeah, I I see that as well. Something I read, and I can't cite it right now, but is about, that basically recommended looking at attachment styles as either secure or insecure, Mm -hmm. and within insecure, looking at the different strategies. So that that I think was very clarifying for me because I work with folks or have experienced moments where I may have presented as more anxious or more avoidant, even within the same relationship, just different contexts or between relationships, maybe with my family one way, my partner the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was clarifying to me to to know that, okay, these are all under the insecure umbrella. Yeah. Yeah. And that's another, I mean, what you just said answers another part of your question about commonly misunderstood is you can have different attachment styles toward different people. Because again, it's a response to care initially. Um, yeah, a couple, the two disclaimers I want to give that are most important, I think, though, are that for parents out there, because I went through this personally, when we talk about attachment, I really urge you not to start panicking about the ways in which you may have messed up your attachment with your child. I, I did some of that myself when I was learning about it in grad school. Mm-hmm. Um, because I was learning like really deep diving into attachment theory at the same time that we had our, our first girl. And it was a little tough for me. Um, and I would encourage you not to do that because I don't think that the science bears that out. I think that if you're a consistent and attentive caregiver, uh, you know, you don't, there's nowhere in there, there's nowhere in the literature on attachment that you have to be perfect, you know? Yeah, in response to that, if you wanted to look into that a little further, there's this concept called the good enough mother by Winnicott, who was a British pediatrician and psychotherapist that focused on attachment work, really looking at the importance of 
misconnection or not being able to fulfill an immediate need as an opportunity for a child to work on some independence. Um, and then Edtronic's work that he did, the still face experiment, which we may or may not talk about, but looking at what percentage of the time, if we see someone who meets criteria for like a secure attachment, meaning like they're, they're able to have a sense of self and and confidence and maybe Justin you can define secure attachment better than that um within relationships the that person experienced attunement and someone meeting their needs a third of the time mm. then they experienced a caregiver that was trying to figure out what the hell they needed a third of the time and then a caregiver that was getting it completely wrong a third of the time. And yeah. all of that together built a secure attachment. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's a, exactly. That's a really important part of this, that there's no perfection in this in terms of the care that you should give as a parent or the, the care um, that you need to have received. Um, but there is, yeah, I think we should just talk about early attachment mm-hmm. development Um and my goal, because, you know, we can only dive so deep. My goal is to talk about the ways in which they, uh, researchers look at attachment in young children and then doing a little bit of a crossover to what this might look like in adult relationships, because obviously people listening to this are adults and, and may or may not be particularly interested in, in the attachment that they style they developed as a child. Um, so I want to talk about the parallels. But the first thing I want to say is I want to just name a few people who are players in this. And the reason I want to do that is you can YouTube attachment and listen to any Joe Schmo say anything. Um, And I think it's important to know some of the people who are really pioneers in this field. So we're going to be talking about attachment theory, which was created by uh, John Bowlby, who is a uh, British psychiatrist. And basically... This was a huge paradigm shift because it moved away from the idea that children attach to their caregiver because they receive food and into a more of a neurobiological paradigm of children attached to their caregiver because they are actually biologically motivated to seek proximity and care and it has nothing to do with food. So that was a huge shift. So in layman's terms, we're hardwired for connection. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Uh, So another player, Mary Ainsworth, uh, created the strain situation research, which we'll talk about. So those are kind of folks who were doing this a while ago. And then Dan Siegel and Alan Shore are two people who are doing a lot of really good research. Basically, I think of this as like the new age on attachment because they're uh, integrating the neuroscience. Um, and if you care about that, there's a lot that they've written about it. So yeah, so those are just some names. Um, should we talk about the strain situation? Before that, can you just explain what secure attachment is? Yeah. Yeah. So secure attachment is a style of attachment that is roughly about 60% of folks have. Um, That is a response, again, a response to the caregiving that you receive. And the way... The way that one comes to view relationships when they are securely attached is is ultimately that the other person can and will meet my needs, that the other person can and will make an effort to understand my internal experience, and that when things aren't going well in the relationship, they will ultimately be okay. That is kind of the internal dialogue of somebody who is securely attached. They don't become overly anxious or fearful in the face of distress in a relationship. Um, and, and again, they, they basically believe that other people will meet their needs. 
because again, they were, you know, in childhood, they were given this, this model of somebody who showed an interest in their internal experience, helped them name it and understand it. And when things got difficult to Mel's point earlier, when there was misattunement, that person helped them work that out and make sense of their experience. And when that's done thousands of times in development, it creates an adult who, again, uh, kind of has those subconscious expectations that things will be okay. Yeah. Is that yeah. sound? I mean, it's a little bit difficult to... No, that was much clearer. So thank you. <laughs> um, and, you know, the the other kinds of attachment, I think might be helpful to just quickly yeah. say what those are. Yeah. yeah. In the insecure bucket, what do we have? Yeah, I mean, so the the short answer is in the insecure bucket, we have avoidant and we have uh, anxious or preoccupied. I'm actually not sure about the disorganized because disorganized attachment style is in the literature around children. And mm-hmm. and I'm not sure if you know if there is a fourth category when when in the literature about adult attachment styles. Not that I've seen, but I haven't yeah. dug as deep. So. Yeah. 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 Or so even I, in in working with clients, it's not often the case. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's um, I think it's fair to say you know when we're talking about adults that we're we're mostly talking about secure, and then we're talking about insecure, anxious, or in, insecure, anxious, preoccupied, or insecure, avoidant. Um, but the but disorganized is is relevant because mm-hmm. you know with children where disorganized attachment occurs in the context of neglect and abuse. Yeah. Um, which obviously impacts, you know, relational paradigms moving into adulthood. Yeah. And thinking about it this way, we, the neuropathways get laid, you know, mm. the, in childhood. And then when we move through the, the lifespan and become adults, that's how we make sense of relationships yeah. I- I- romantically. So it matters um, yeah. when when we, you know, whatever our even sub, uh, pre-verbal experiences, yeah. especially <laughs> pre-verbal experiences, um, the impact an adult relationship, a marriage, uh, you know, and, and how we parent. So there's just mm-hmm. many layers to it that we might not be able to even pinpoint. Um, or maybe mm-hmm. we can, and we're like, then what the hell do we do about it? And that's something I'd hopefully like us to get to today. So I, I want to spend more on what do we do about it yeah. than what, what it is. So yeah. let me know. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really important point. And you know, our, our whole point here is to give some practical tips. So I think that we should spend most of the time talking about, you know, if you or somebody who was, who had, you know, ha- developed an insecure attachment style to their primary caregiver. Um, and yeah, that's followed you into adulthood. Exactly. Like you said, what, what can you do about that? And there's some really concrete things that you could do, um, you know, through the, through the idea of rupture and repair, which we'll talk about. I think, I think we should just talk really generally about the strange situation because it gives, it sets up just a very rough idea. And I'm, look, I'm not, they've done a ton of research here and I'm not going to pretend to understand it all. Um, and to dug deep into all of the different ways in which they analyze these young children. But I think that setting this experiment up briefly will really help people understand this. So the strange situation is a research project where they bring in a kid nine months to 18 months with their primary caregiver. And then they basically pay attention to the child's behavior around um, the caregiver leaving the room and the caregiver coming back and reuniting is the most important part of the research. So 
the kid's in a room with a researcher that he doesn't know. They have um, a room full of toys, which again, I'm going to link this back to adulthood. So for adults, the room full of toys is the world, right? It's kind of all the possibilities of adults to this one-year-old child. The primary caregiver leaves and comes back in. And again, the reuniting is where the, the research really starts. In an avoidantly attached child, what you see is a child who's playing with the toys, the caregiver comes back in, and the child glances over and doesn't pay much attention, isn't particularly concerned that the caregiver's back. There's acknowledgement there, but there isn't a huge, um, there isn't any effort to seek proximity or comfort or care. And again, I want to do the parallel so that people actually can take something from this. So that's an avoidantly attached child. And again, I'm very much oversimplifying, you know, what actually happens in the experiment. But what you have is somebody who does not get lit up by relationships. Mm -hmm. So to Mel's point earlier about the, the neurological component, they haven't made the neural connections in, in childhood that proximity to other people equals care and, and, and uh, regulation. They don't, they don't see relationships so much as the emotional space. They see them more as transactional. Mm -hmm. And this is super easy to understand in adulthood, right? Because these are the folks who don't understand their emotional experience. They don't particularly care about deep connections with people. Um, I mean, you can get on the far end, get into narcissism here, right? Where, where people are just really lacking empathy and connection to others because they weren't given a consistent uh, relationship with their caregiver where they were, their internal experience was basically uh, someone helped them understand their internal experiences. When that doesn't happen, you, you see avoidant uh, strategies. How about the kind of avoidance where someone is walled up to the point where they're able to cut ties and go mm. um and they're you know maybe commitment averse or you know mm. in adult relationships it's not that they don't have empathy but that they are just uh, not willing or capable in that moment of taking the risk of the relationship itself mm -hmm. um so that they kind of sever ties or yeah. want to sever ties yeah I think that's a that's a really good question, and you know, there's two ways I, I think about that. One is that that could be indicative of somebody with an avoidant personality who's not putting a ton of, again, kind of a, a ton of stock in the emotional connection between other people. But what it also strikes me as is somebody, and we'll talk about this in a second. But the, when you have an anxious, preoccupied type, yeah. and you're you basically can't tolerate the discomfort of the ebbs and flows of relationships. Mm -hmm. then you take a black and white approach of I'm clinging on for dear life or I'm cutting this off. Yeah. So you think that that, because I see that happening within the same person. And so that, yeah. that concept then could be different manifestations of the anxious preoccupied type, yeah. not the avoidant. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's I, helpful to clarify. For sure. I think so. And that, so I'll just very briefly explain in the strange situation, what you see is the child playing with the toys, the caregiver comes back in and the child clings to the, to the primary caregiver, like actually, you know, holds on for dear life. So here what you have is a pattern of, of inconsistent caregiving. Um, sometimes the parent is attentive and emotionally supportive. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes there's proximity to the child. Sometimes there isn't. But the child doesn't know what to expect. So when they come back in, it's like, hey, you're here. I'm hanging on for dear life. Again, we all know people like this in adulthood, right? This is the person who's, when they're in a relationship, they become both anxious and preoccupied, right? Their life gets smaller. They do fewer things for themselves. They they become very invested in the relationship in a way that's 
that's uh, taking them away from the other things they used to care about. And, and that does, the reason they're doing is that is primarily because of the anxiety that mm-hmm. being in a relationship brings up for them and they become uh, preoccupied. So I see it more as reassurance seeking. Yeah. Kind of that, like how to check in to make sure we're still good mm-hmm. and um, looking for those data points to try to find some consistency and predictability yeah. uh, because the anticipation is that it's going to continue to change and then people become fixated on trying to anticipate those changes or do things to avoid the change from happening. Yeah. Well, there you know, there you are kind of, again, very consistently um, having more strength space and less judgmental language than I am. So oh, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. No, I really think that's great. Um, yeah. And I agree with you. Um, and I think what, what you just said there is important when we talk about rupture and repair, because the internal dialogue doesn't necessarily change right away as we're working toward a learned secure attachment, which we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, but the behavioral response does. So you tolerate the internal experience of I'm feeling really anxious in this relationship. I'm feeling really preoccupied in this relationship. I'm very concerned with where my partner is and how they're feeling about me. And I'm needing that reassurance. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not going to allow that to dictate my, my behavior. I'm not going to make my world smaller. I'm not going to, mm-hmm. um, you know, necessarily always have those reassurance behaviors. I'm going to acknowledge them and then behave in the way you know, um, that I'm moving toward a learned secure attachment. Right. Um, Act, which we could talk acting about. as if. Yeah, exactly. Is there anything more on the strange experiment you, experiment you want to say before we go into eruption repair? Yeah. Just the last one around. Yep. Um, well, I guess there's two. So very quickly, the secure child is playing with the toys. The, the caregiver comes in and again, I'm just being very general here. Um, the, the child touches base with the caregiver, gives a hug, runs over and, you know, says, Hey, can you see all these toys? And then goes back to the toys so again, in adulthood, in the literature, this is called the home base, right? The secure attachment figure becomes the home base. Um, but again, in adulthood, what you have is somebody who is both connected to and supported by someone in a romantic relationship, say, but has their, because they're secure in that, they have their own experiences. They can go back and explore the world. Again, you know, the toys of the child's world here. Um, so there's a there's an, a home base there. And then the last one is disorganization. Um, and this is just really sad where the the child uh, caregiver comes in and the child seeks proximity to the caregiver and then often just freezes and or collapses because what's happening in disorganized strategy is that the child is both drawn to the caregiver and that's Bowlby's theory that we are that way as as humans um, but terrified of the caregiver because the caregiver is either abusive or severely mentally ill or neglectful um, so it creates what they call a biological paradox which is this this place where the child doesn't know what to do because they, they want proximity, but they're also fearful. Um, and it's easy to see how that creates chaos in adult relationships because you just never, you never have an organized strategy, yeah. you know, yeah. to, of, of how to engage in relationships. So we've referenced rupture and repair. Yeah. This idea that there's misattunement. There's an argument. There is something that we don't agree on. There's a need that is currently unmet or unseen or unacknowledged. That's the rupture. We all know what it feels like to experience rupture in relationship. Yeah. Repair is the effort towards and then the meeting of 
you know, seeing, validating, being with, and, and, um, you know, meeting a need. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's an intuitive process because basically the rupture is any way in a relationship that there is, uh, discomfort or, or, uh, distress, right? Mm -hmm. So from as small as you've been kind of distant tonight to as big as, infidelity or something right there's a spectrum of ruptures yep um and everybody's familiar with the idea that talking about it and apologizing and whatever is important but i think repair is more than that because the repair is a complete sharing of the internal experiences around it and ownership of any mistakes you know or fault mm-hmm. um and getting to a place where two people can can move on i'm interested in your work with couples do you feel like you can see the legacy of ruptures that weren't repaired sometimes? Yeah, I think that's yeah. a helpful way to, to put it. Uh, and it's yeah. often missed opportunities to test assumptions mm. because yeah. uh, basically there's a lot of like internal operating of this is how the other person must be feeling or this is what they're thinking about me and then Mm -hmm. acting on that information as if it's true. And even if it is true a certain percentage of the time, uh, what it's doing is depriving the couple of an opportunity to communicate about it, clarify reality test. Mm -hmm. um, And that's when things tend to get worse before they get better because they missed the smaller windows to check in and then it becomes a larger rupture. Um, And so in session, it's often catching that before it gets to the larger rupture or they're presenting, okay, this was the rupture. And then we do the autopsy to figure out where, where was the, the missed opportunity. For sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I th- that sounds like great work. And I, the point that you made about uh, the stories is so yeah. important because that is, and that's what I say a lot in couples counseling is that the, the work of the repair is to quiet the stories because when you don't have enough information, you create information and it's always, <laughs> it's usually um, mm-hmm. not a kind interpretation of your partner's intentions or motivations or, um, so the rupture, I mean, the repair is largely about quieting the stories for people so that they can manage the, you know, anxiety and distress that comes with, you know, arguing or fighting with a partner. Yeah. And another pattern I see almost universally, and um, this is pulled from Emotionally Focused Couples Therapy by Sue Johnson, is uh, you know, the, the more anxious-based person that and that can also switch even within a relationship you know, situation, but the, the person that is wanting the reassurance going towards, and then the other person who's withdrawing and pulling away. Mm-hmm. And then the cycle of that, because yeah. the most anxiety producing thing for someone that's looking for reassurance is silence and stonewalling. Mm-hmm. And when someone's feeling overwhelmed by, by a person trying to get reassurance, mm-hmm. the most you know, triggering thing is that, need for reassurance and so they pull further and further away and so being able to see what what the pattern is and opportunities to disrupt it which is uh one example would be for the person that needs a moment to identify that and then give a designated reasonable amount of time for when they're going to return to the conversation right so i need a half hour type of deal um, yeah. and I will come back. I will come back. Yeah. I'm, I, I care about you. Yeah. I need to regulate so I can have a productive conversation. And yeah. Let's talk about this after dinner or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the person that's looking for the reassurance, their job is different. Their job is to 
distract themselves, self-regulate and tolerate the fact Mm -hmm. that there's going to be a moment where they don't have the reassurance because they're going to need to also regulate so that the conversation can meet in the middle in the window of tolerance, which we'll get into in another podcast. But yeah, that's real. I mean, and that's really good practical advice because the, you know, there's work for both people in that, right? Like you said, there's, you know, kind of distress tolerance for one person, just managing a little bit of discomfort while the other person is is self-regulating the the huge point i want to make about what you just said is how much a few words how important a few words can be Mm -hmm. because the difference between me turning around and showing you my back in silence and me turning around and showing you my back after saying i love you i i'm really struggling right now i'll be back in 10 minutes i'm gonna go for a walk is everything and it's like two sentences yep (laughs) you know and i realized we've been talking a lot as counselors and not a lot as a couple. And so I want to just ask you, you know, when did you start to see some, some of my attachment style show up in our relationship? And maybe you didn't know it as that at the time, but you know, how, how did that look? Yeah, I think probably around before, um, before we got married, because I remember feeling like we were, you know, in a pretty good place and things were good, but you were pretty focused on, um, I'm actually interested if this is true for you, right? Like, yeah. because in my mind, you were pretty focused on, on getting engaged and, mm-hmm. and, and my perspective was kind of like, okay, you know, that's fine. But also I'm not really sure what the rush is. And my, the story I'm telling myself, which is a skill we should talk about after this yeah. is, um, the story I'm telling myself is that you, you needed that in a sense like that that like you couldn't feel fully mm-hmm. secure within the relationship until you had a ring on it and that's the story i'm talking about <laughs> yeah i mean you're not wrong yeah. uh so i have an anxious or my attachment style historically was insecure with an anxious presentation that's mm-hmm. a strategy that i most often used um and you know came out of unpredictable caregiving not in the sense that you know we could go into my life story another time but <laughs> but um came in feeling like early on and if you listen to the first podcast I could explain you know I'm I'm yelling in an argument and Justin's looking at me like we don't have to yell just because we're not agreeing on something we're like oh I'm dealing with someone that has a secure attachment here mm-hmm. um and that's not my framework um yeah and so I also think within our relationship in particular, I just had always felt more ready to be in the the story I'm telling myself is I was always more ready to be committed in the relationship. Yeah. And so that felt like, okay, we're finally in the same place. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you're right. I don't, I don't mean to suggest that, um, you know, your anxiety is just running the show here. Like I, in my early twenties, I was, somebody who it would be it would be easy to be anxious around because I was out a lot and I you know I was kind of a young and dumb kid uh, yeah. so I guess what I, I I don't know that I did anything to to quell your feelings <laughs> of anxiety um but I do I am interested you know as we're getting toward the end here and in, in hearing about how the, the evolution for you yeah you know because I don't think you would identify again mm-hmm. the story I'm telling myself is that in this moment in our relationship 12 years in you wouldn't identify as you know, having uh, uh, anxious organization toward me and our relationship. No, and as you were describing secure attachment earlier, I was like, all right, here we are. Yeah. Um, because, you know, they, in the literature, you'll, you'll hear earned secure attachment. 
And yeah. a client of mine brought this up recently of like, oh, that word earned. Um, and I agree. I, I want to coin it a learned secure attachment, mm-hmm. not, not to um, minimize the work that goes into it, but to acknowledge that um, this is not about worthiness. This is about access to, in, to information, to input, to, yeah. to things that we may or may not have had. Um, and if for me, the thoughts are still present, just not as often and not as loudly. Um, yeah. So, you know, I will, uh, something that happens often um, is me expressing to Justin that I feel like he's mad at me or I want to make sure that he's not mad at me. Mm-hmm. Like that's a form I feel of me just checking in. Yeah. Um, and most of the time he's not mad at me. Um, but I, you know, want to rule out that possibility. And then what has shifted for me is I'm no longer, um, uh, one time I described it like, I feel like I had this punch card and every time we get into an argument, another hole is put in the card. Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly how many, spots I have before this relationship ends. Mm. But every time we fight, I feel like I'm a notch closer to having you know, ruined it all, right? Yeah. Like, so that, that undercurrent is no longer present. Mine mm. goes into another place with that if, in my dreams, like literally the nightmares I have is like something catastrophic happens to you and I'm no longer, you know, able to to be with you again, like that you were taken out of my life. Like that, that is the, the undercurrent that's still present, but you know, the day to day life. No, not there. Yeah. And, and do you, do you think it's, thank you for sharing all of that. I (laughs) appreciate that. Is, um, do you think that the, the shift is the result of, because again, you're identifying this internal process that Mm -hmm. is still there somewhat, even if it's quieter. But the shift I would imagine happened because of the behavioral changes, right? The, the behavior that you and I engage in together mm-hmm. of naming internal experiences, talking things out and repairing ruptures as they come up is, do you think that's the process? That's- yeah. I mean, I think I just began to trust in that things are going to be okay. Yeah. Um, the, Justin's parents have been married a long time and, um, you know, I realized in, in, um, the seating chart at our wedding actually was the moment. It was like a genogram. If anyone's ever gone to like social work school, it's like a map of different relationships and your, your family unit and tree. And I realized every single person in my family is divorced <laughs> or has been divorced uh, across the board. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I made the joke of like, I, I have to do the seating chart based on like, uh, restraining order distance, you know, type of thing, which is not uh, that funny of a joke. But anyway, um, so not having that modeled um, in a yeah. way, but something that Justin's parents have said is this idea of like, and I'm going to paraphrase them poorly here, but um, that just there will be ups and downs, but believing that that you're going to get through it and yeah. that you're there's going to be an up cycle again and that you know, yeah. that's worth it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you know, we're almost, we're almost done here. I think the thing that I, that I do want to flag though, is, is that that process of believing mm-hmm. isn't magic. It, yeah. it is the process of doing ruptures and repairs over and over and over again. The work of the repair. We don't go to sleep angry. We, right. Right? we don't spend days kind of stewing about things. Yeah. We address any type of arguments that we have quickly and fully with, 
an understanding of what we were experiencing dur- during them. Mm-hmm. And it is that work that creates security where in folks who weren't kind of freely given that um, type of secure attachment style in, in childhood. So I, I think that's an important thing to mm-hmm. say because it's, there is hope, right? I've, I've worked with people in couples counseling who I see the shift. I literally yeah. see it um, from, an, from an insecure attachment style into a secure one. And it's because of, their, because of something they're doing. So I just want to flag that and not that it's like you're with someone long enough and, and it's generally kind of a good enough relationship and you'll feel secure. Like it's an yeah. active process. Yeah, it, it's the reality testing, assumption testing that gives the opportunity to really understand that most of the stuff coming up is the other person's stuff. Totally. <laughs> and I don't mean that like, oh, nobody's at fault. I mean like a lot of the confusion and the rupture, mm. what what enhances the rupture is me assuming this about you, you assuming this about me, me reacting to this thing that you don't even know you did and yeah. vice versa. Yeah. Um, and when we can clarify that and when we can see in ourselves or I can, you know, I've said to you, like, I'm not going to let your flight response, like, dictate how I'm feeling right now. Yeah. yeah, right. Like to be able to like name and understand, which is, you know, that's not a good example of, reality, of assumption testing, but it was at least it's closer uh, to name. Yeah. Um, but to be able to put it out there and process through because then it's more clear. Okay. Um, I'm really freaked out about this change of plans. That's really stressful for me. That brings up a lot of things about not feeling like, um, my input is important or whatever that might be. Mm -hmm. And that is very different from the person's intention, let's say. And then there's an opportunity to clarify that. And then in the future, for that person to to utilize that information to avoid a rupture possibly or or minimize one. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and you're speaking there, you know, about getting to know each other through this sharing process. I do think what you just alluded to though about the the flight response there also is benefit in in education. I mean, it, part of therapy is psychoeducation where the therapist mm-hmm. talks about, you know, talks about a variety of topics just from the perspective of providing education on Yep. And understanding flight responses, for example, as stress responses, in and of itself, I remember, I mean, I, I've said things like, get me out of here, mm-hmm. right? Out loud. Mm-hmm. And somebody with an anxious attachment style could hear that as a as a wife and mother is like, are you going to abandon the family? Right. You know, they could hear that as like a really serious thing. Like, you're saying, get me out of here. Mm-hmm. But, I, but you'll say, like, I'm not going to take your flight response personally. Like, you're yeah. stressed out right now. And get me out of here means like, I, you know, I need to leave the house or whatever. Yeah. Um. So that is obviously based somewhat on the work that we've done again with the rupture and repair, but it's also just psychoeducation. Like you understand mm-hmm. that that's a flight response yeah. and therefore it, it need not be taken personally. You know? Yes. And I think the difference of when I was in a more insecurely attached place to a securely attached place is to be able to notice that that's what's happening for you and to not take it personally. I think yeah. that is a skill I did not have yeah. a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. I mean, I remember a specific example of that where I was actually kind of floored by how well you responded because <laughs> I was being really, I was saying very unhelpful things while I was dysregulated and you were just really, As we do, right? Yeah, exactly. That's, that's how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. 
any other really important attachment skills we haven't, I know we're a little longer than we typically, you know, think about um, doing the podcast yeah. for, but there's a lot to say. We could do a, a follow-up if you guys are interested. Let us know. Yeah. We have an Instagram page, add a couple of counselors, follow us. You can comment. Um, there's a highlight reel of episode content that I will add infographics of different information we discuss if you're more visual in the processing of things, but yeah. Yeah, um, that sounds good. And I, I want to thank you uh, publicly here for your work on Instagram because I reiterate <laughs> that I you know, know nothing about that. So thank you. I, I am learning in real time as, as we are with this. So yeah. thank you all for taking the time and donating some attention, which is a commodity that we recognize. And yeah. um, here's to some more repairs. Yeah. Thanks. Till next time. <laughs>